The scripture today is from Romans 8, 22 to 30. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for hope for what we see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, so good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. <clears throat> My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City Church. It's good to see all of you this morning. We continue in a series in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, we've been kind of camped out here in chapter 8 uh, for a few weeks, which I'm grateful for. It's a high point of our scriptures. This is our last week before uh, we leave it, so I'm relishing this last visit. To be honest, uh, Romans 9 through 11 is probably some of the most difficult scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, and so next Sunday morning is going to feel like getting out of a warm bed on a really cold morning, at least for me, as we try to venture into those, into those chapters. Uh, but today, we get to still be in the confines of the warm bed a little bit, which is this, this beautiful chapter of, of scripture. I want to zoom out from the few verses, and really we're going to be focusing on verses 26 through 30, but we started in verse 22 because I want to bring some things in from there as well. I want to zoom out, though, for a minute and, um, and look at this uh, passage as a whole one last time. And notice, again, it would be helpful if you have a Bible, so if you did bring one or if you have your smartphone out or whatever the case might be, if you want to grab the one in the pew in front of you, that would be great because we, it will be good to jump around a little bit. Uh, you'll, be, you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 8, it may seem like a long, long time ago that we were there, uh, that Paul begins everything he's going to say here with this great, for, this wonderful statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then at the end, and this is the way we preach this text, we skip from the beginning to the end because we wanted you to see how the, the, really everything that he says here is bracketed by these great promises. Uh, at the beginning, no condemnation. At the end, in verses 38 and 39, we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, but what happens is, is in the middle of, of those two wonderful high points of Scripture, there's a lot of really hard stuff. Because that's what life feels like. The key when you're going through all that hard stuff that the, that the text promises you is to not forget where you've been and where you're going. And there's an interesting feature in the text, actually, that brings this out that really kind of fascinated me as I was preparing this week. All of the important uh, words, all of the important verbs at the beginning and the end in those beautiful, you know, lovely promise passages 
All the words there are in the aorist tense, which means they point to something in the past that's already happened that has some kind of continuation into the present. Okay? Jesus has come. Um, We have been loved by God and called and justified. And even the word, verse 30, glorified there, believe it or not, uh, which which refers to what we'll be like in heaven, even that word is in the aorist tense. It should be translated, you have been already glorified. It's fascinating. So in both those, in both the beginning and the end, there's all of this, this language that's pointing us back to the things that have already happened, that God has already done, these, these wonderful things that have taken place. Uh, but then in the middle of Romans 8, what you have is as you read about what the world is like there in those middle verses, it all happens in the future tense. So verse 21 says, you know, the creation will be set free. So it's looking forward. And so all throughout, uh, the, you know, the chapter you're going back and forth between what happened in the past, and what will happen in the future. Romans 8 is all about living courageously in a broken world. And the word Paul uses in verse 24 is the word hope. And hope is just that. It's what I'm trying to describe. It, it is knowing that when it feels like everything is going wrong, you got to remember you're just in the middle of a story. And every story has a beginning and a middle and an end. And the middle part, of all the good stories anyway, is the really hard part. But if you belong to Jesus, your beginning and your ending are the love of God in Christ, which means the middle must be too. You hear me? If you're in Jesus, the way the passage lays out, then your beginning and your ending is the love of God in Christ. And if you began in the love of God in Christ, and if you're headed for the love of God in Christ, then guess what? Wherever you are today, guess where you are? You're in the love of God. In Christ. And that's what you have to remember. That's, that, you have to remember that God has decisive, decisively loved you and committed himself to you. And he has a plan and a future for you. And those two, those two truths have to be the frame or the bracket, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use, have to be the frame uh, for which you view whatever the today is that you're facing. And so no matter what's happening, you, you frame your life with those truths and then the result is that you don't stop living love. You, you keep showing up. You keep loving. You keep longing. You keep hoping. You don't, you don't shut your heart down. You don't, you don't move out of the story God is telling. That's the life of the Spirit. Have you noticed? Did you notice in, in this chapter how many times the Spirit is mentioned? The Spirit's everywhere in Romans 8. And what fascinates me is what we'll see this morning. As you come to verse 26, uh, you'll notice that when the Spirit all of this mention of the Spirit, where Paul ultimately takes us, as he says, the work of the Spirit in keeping us in the story uh, is really a moving us into the discipline and the habit of prayer. So I was surprised uh, when this became a sermon about prayer, I'll be honest with you. Because typically this would be a doctrinal high point in the Presbyterian tradition, right? But really, I think what Paul's saying is, is the only way you get through life is to figure out how to pray. And that's actually the Spirit's work. And so we're going to see three things uh, that the Spirit does and that are really evidences and assurances of the Spirit's work in our life. The first is uh, that if the Spirit is at work in you, then you will pray. The Spirit leads you to prayer. That's the first thing. Secondly, you'll see not only does the Spirit lead you to prayer, but part of the function of the Spirit is to lead you to praying from the appropriate depths. And then lastly... 
Spirit also will lead us to praying from the appropriate wide-angle lens. And when those three things come together, when you start to pray, when you start to pray by the Spirit from the appropriate depths, when you start to pray Spirit's wisdom from the right wide-angle lens, then you find the courage not to keep going in the middle when life gets hard. And so let's look at those three things together as we walk through this text together, okay? So let's first, let's just talk about how the Spirit moves us to prayer. Let's connect this with what came before. So verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says, for we do not know what to pray. Now, he's been talking about hope in verses 24 and 25. And so he's, he's transitioning from hope there in those verses to prayer beginning in verse 26. So the ministry of the Spirit in the middle of the hard stuff is to help you wait and not lose heart. You see that twice up there. To wait patiently or to wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So the ministry of the Spirit is to do that, is to help you wait and not lose heart. In the same way, the Spirit helps you pray, beginning in verse 26, so the Spirit produces hope. And the way that hope expresses itself in your life is through this habit of prayer. Therefore, the degree to which you turn to prayer when life gets hard is a measure of the Spirit's work in your life. So we need to ask the question then, why do we not pray? Well, the text says that we don't pray, verse 26, because we're weak. And the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness by leading us into prayer. Uh, We are biologically conditioned to respond to a threat in one of two ways. What are they? Fight or flight. And they're fight people and they're flight people. Prayer, prayer is the holy ground in the middle. And it's the Spirit's job to keep us praying. But what we do is instead of praying... We either, I'm going to put it this way, we either strategize or we shut down, typically. Now, I, uh, those of you who know me, you will not be surprised to hear me say that I am a strategizer. Uh, and this is the fight, the fight instinct. I, I lost an entire night's sleep uh, the week before last. Uh, there, well, there was a two-hour window where I might have slept, and I guess maybe I did because Ashley said I was snoring. But anyway, I went to bed. I went to bed. I, I went to bed at 1, and I was up and moving at 3.30, and so it was a very short night regardless. And, you know, it's not coincidental that it's tax season, so sleepless nights are somewhat, un, you know, unco- uncommon. And uh, I laid there in bed freaking out until I finally got up and came to my office because my computer was here, and the only thing... <laughs> The only thing that made me feel better, I'm, I'm laying in bed praying to God, knowing I've got to find peace, I've got to find peace, I've got to find peace, and no matter what I'm doing, I can't find peace until I come to my office and turn on my computer, uh, because turning to God brought me no comfort, but turning to Excel did, and so I was able, I know, it's awful, I was terrible, I'm a prayer flunky, as Bob would say. Uh, I was able to come up with a plan in the middle of the night on this sleepless night, and I was able to see how at least I thought I could fix the problem. And once I had a plan and once I knew there was a way for me to be able to fix the things that were going wrong, only then did I begin to settle down. And that's how I do life. As long as I have a plan, I feel pretty okay. Uh, When there's a threat, prayer for me is too often a last resort and not my first impulse because I still live with an orphan mentality. If it's going to be, it's up to me. It's a spiritual weakness. It's, it's sin. And what is sin? Sin in its essence, this is John Stott said this, he said, the essence of sin is man trying to uh, substitute himself for God. 
And so if I face a threat by strategizing instead of praying, then that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm saying, you know, uh, it's my smarts. It's my, it's my uh, strength. It's my wealth. It's my plan uh, that's going to get me through this, not God. So when things feel out of control, I'm not okay until I can figure out how to, I can regain control. Anybody else? You with me? See some people shaking their heads. Good to know that I'm not alone, that I'm not the only one. And that's the reason for the plan. The plan allows me the delusion that I am in control of my life. And it is just that. It's a delusion. And I'm talking about unbelief here. I don't like the story God is writing. So I'm going to write my own. That's what I mean. Now, I, I strategize. Other people, and you may be in this category, other people shut down. They, they go numb. They shut off their hearts. And this is the other way you can go with this. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18 about a widow experiencing a horrible injustice. You might remember the story. She kept going back to the judge over and over and over again until, uh, I mean, she was just wearing this guy out. He finally gave her what she wanted. And the purpose of the parable in Luke uh, was, according to Jesus, to illustrate how we should always pray and not lose heart. So it's so easy to lose heart in this heartless world we live in, isn't it? to disengage emotionally, to cocoon ourselves from any feeling or passion because it's just it's too hard to think about being disappointed again. And that's what suffering does to a lot of people. Uh, the hurt is so profound that you've experienced that you decide you're just not going to feel anything and you lose your courage and you stop showing up for life and you disengage from the story because it's too painful to keep hoping. It's too painful to keep thinking, oh, just around the corner something's going to happen. You know, it's just too painful to stay engaged in what God's doing. And that's unbelief too. God's writing a story, but, but you have to stay in the story. And prayer, prayer is the way you stay in the story. And this is what we've learned from our friend Paul Miller and Bob Allums who, uh, who do the Praying Life seminars. This is a huge part of what they teach, that prayer is the way that you stay in the story. It's the way, verse 23 and 24, you wait eagerly in hope. So the ministry of the Spirit is to move us away from our strategizing and are shutting down and into prayer. And so you're being led by the Spirit if when hard things come, you go to prayer. It should be our impulse, but it's hard to do. It's hard to stay in the story God is writing because the world is hard. I mean, that's the point of all of those verses in the middle of Romans 8. And God is slow, as Jonathan has already said, and the resurrection that he promises uh, is often too long in coming. So we kind of just get impatient and we either take over or we give up. That's the only way in our unbelief and sin we know how to live, and it's spiritual weakness. It's spiritual. It's what, it's what Paul's referring to here in verse 26 when he says the Spirit helps us with our weakness. Our weakness is our propensity when it gets hard to want to either take control or just give up. Faith does something different. Faith waits. And of course, you know, this is the constant call of the Scriptures, right? Uh, Isaiah 30, 18, which I've just found myself coming back to over and over again in the last few weeks. The Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show you mercy. Blessed are all who wait on him. Isn't that a great verse? I've been meditating on this other verse from Isaiah 64, 4 that says this. Uh, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. So I love that verse so much. It says, the Lord is unlike all the other gods. 
And what pleases him most is not our work for him, but our need of him. He delights not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. And so this idea of waiting is so central to what it means to be a person of faith. And the way you wait, the thing you do when you're waiting, is prayer. It starts with a, an acknowledgement of our dependency and reliance upon God, even when we're most active. So it's not passive, this idea of waiting. It's active. It's, it's building, but it knows as it builds that ultimately, unless God builds, it's all in vain. That all the things that we need the most will be achieved for us by his work or not at all. And so even though you're active and involved, there's secondly a sense of rest and quiet because you know that you're being carried along by the current of God's love. So Eugene Peterson put it this way, which I, I really find helpful. He said, waiting is strategic not doing. Strategic not doing. You refuse to break out the oars and start rowing, Right? I mean, one of my, we, we, years ago when our kids um, were, were coming, you know, we were starting to have kids and start parenting started to become really real. Probably about the time I had a third one or something like that. Um, I started to write down, how am I going to do this parenting thing? What I, and one of my, my top things is, one of my top goals in my parenting of my children is to just stay out of the way of God's parenting of them. Right? Strategic not doing not to not jump in and and break out the oars when the wind is not blowing and make the ship go whatever direction I think I think I need to go and instead stay in the story stay in the story of what God's doing and then thirdly pay attention as you're in the story because uh, God is always at work the scripture teaches us and waiting means being on the lookout for the how and the where and the when of God's working because you're confident you know he's always at work and that's where prayer comes in prayer Prayer is not a laundry list of things we need God to do for us. Prayer is communion with him in the midst of the story. It's waiting with God while he and his time unfolds the story he's writing. And so the Spirit helps us stay in the story by leading us to prayer. That's the first thing. Now the second thing, uh, if you keep looking with me in, in the text, you'll see the second thing is that the Spirit helps us to pray from the appropriate depths so I start talking about prayer, and most of us roll our eyes because our experience of prayer is monotonous and boring, right? We start every prayer conference this way, don't we, Bob? I mean, it's just, this is people's experience of prayer. And I want to say the reason our prayers are so flat is because we do not pray from the appropriate depths, but the Spirit does, as we're told here, and it's His job to take us there. Like, so the best example I can tell you, men, uh, you know, we're not so great with expressing our feelings. At least we use that as an excuse a whole lot of times, right? Can I get an amen, ladies? Uh, the men, I'm sorry, I'm just not good at that. And that's why there are Hallmark cards for your anniversary that put into words for you all the things that you feel, but either you're too lazy or just unskilled in being able to write those things on a piece of paper. And so you buy the card and it says for you uh, maybe what you feel, but you've not been able to put into words. The Spirit's job is just that. The Spirit takes our dull prayers and brings the appropriate affectation into them. That's his work of intercession, we're told here. Verse 26, he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So where we are most times shut off from the lower regions of our heart, we don't go deep into our hearts. The Spirit does. The Spirit groans, we're told. Don't you love that thing about the Spirit groans? That's an amazing thing. And the Spirit groans with depth of emotion and longing that surpasses explanation that's too deep for words. In other words, the Spirit goes places we cannot go on our own. 
And it's his job to take us there to the deep places of our own hearts that we could never unlock without his help, to a more fuller, uh, more genuine expression of hope and sadness and longing and lament. In other words, the Spirit's work is to cause our hearts to come alive through prayer in new ways. If the problem is that we're prone to lose heart, that we're, we're prone to, you know, our heart seeps courage, and eventually we just stop living from the heart because it's too painful to do that because the world is full of, you know, brokenness and sadness and loss, then the solution is to keep your heart. And that looks something like this. It means to be able to live with the courage and the honesty to both hope and lament at the same time. We're all prone, get this, this will be helpful to you, I think. We're all prone to do it all and to feel nothing. That's the essence of our spiritual weakness expressed in prayerlessness. That the way most of us live our, our lives is we expect to do it all and to feel nothing. So the Spirit helps uh, us to live in reverse of that. It causes us to feel everything and to do nothing. Now you can get a picture really quickly of how difficult that is, can't you? Doesn't that feel awful? Does that sound awful to anybody else? And yet, that is the place where the heart is truly alive. That's the depth. To feel all of the pain and the sadness that this world brings and to not try to fix it, but instead to take it to God. It's something that is ultimately uniquely Christian. The world uh, doesn't have the resources to make this possible. No other worldview interacts with the suffering of the world this way. Kelly Capick, who is a professor at Covenant College, has written a great little book on su about suffering, and he says... That on the one hand, what makes life so hard is that we know it shouldn't be. That all of the sadness and the loss that we experience, we know this means that something is wrong. That the world was made by God to be good, and it isn't. And we were, we were made for shalom. We were made to experience this shalom of God, and it's not here yet. And so he says the way of faithfulness then in a world like that is what he calls defiant hope that refuses both utopianism and cynicism. And hope is the way of keeping your heart, not giving up on the vision of shalom the Bible offers, right? Because that's the temptation. When things aren't going the way the scripture even says they should, you think, well, God, that's just full of it. The scripture, the Bible doesn't, the Bible's not realistic. It doesn't know what it's talking about. No, you, you refuse to give up on the vision of shalom the Bible offers with defiant hope, but also at the same time. There's also alongside of that lament, which acknowledges that the world is so broken that there is nothing that we can do to fix it. Man, we avoid this, don't we? Every funeral service now is a celebration of life. And I can't help but wonder if it's because we can't escape the idea that feeling sad is a sign of spiritual weakness. And I just want to tell you, it's not. What passes for faith is often dishonest and heartless. It's a way of not feeling Calling a funeral a celebration of life can be a way of not dealing with just it's sad to say goodbye to somebody you love. It's a surface level interaction with the world's brokenness, but we're after depth, remember? And depth means honesty about how we feel about what's wrong in the world and how long it is taking God to make it right. So mourning over sin and death is not an option. It's an obligation if you want to be like Jesus because it's the way he reacted to sin and death. It's a way of keeping your heart. So there's an emotional complexity to this, right? You see this defiant hope and honest lament. They, they don't cancel one another out, but it's something that is absolutely unique. And so there's a slide that I want to put up. Josh, if you'd put that up for me, that'd be great. 
I want you to see how this works together, and this is what we're really after. So on the on the the, the vertical axis, you see that we're we're talking about the, the issue of hope. Up high is high, so there's a high hope there and a low hope on the bottom, and then lament goes across the horizontal axis. And so you see these different approaches uh, to life. Let's start in the lower left-hand quadrant where most of us, or, or where you know people um, without the resources of the Christian faith live, would be with neither hope nor lament. And it's just kind of this detached stoicism. This is why I think um, some of the Eastern religions are so popular in Hollywood and some of the cultural centers of our, of our culture because the only way we know to deal with hard things in our world is to just try to detach ourselves as much as we can from them. Really, it's foolish to have either hope and it's foolish to really be sad. You just, just kind of happy yourself up and, and go to a higher plane of existence. But then if you just go up one quadrant, you'll see there's a way of having high hope um, and not having lament, and these are the people that are just annoying because they're always cheerful, and you get a sense of you really can't be that cheerful all the time. And you get a sense of, right, something's not right here. Because sometimes life's hard and you just need to cry, right? But on the lower right-hand quadrant, there are those people who uh, high lament, Low in hope, these are just, this is just unrelenting despair. This is just wallowing in your grief. This is what you do on Facebook, right? Just tell the whole world how awful your life is. And what we're after is this quadrant up to the right of what we call faithful suffering, which combines this idea of hope holding on, refusing to let go of the vision of shalom in the Bible, but refusing to be dishonest about what it feels like to live in a world that's broken. And that's a heart fully engaged in the world that Paul describes in Romans 8. And Christianity is the only worldview that takes suffering seriously, but it takes, are you with me? It takes a tremendous amount of emotional energy and courage. Can you feel that? I mean, go like this if you can. That'd be helpful, good, okay. Yeah, it does. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and energy to mourn and not lose your hope. And so you need the spirit. That's the point. You need the spirit. You're too weak to get there on your own. But if you have the spirit, what the spirit is doing is he's moving you to prayer. He's moving you. He's moving you to pray from the appropriate depths. So he wants you to stay in the story by praying, by praying from the appropriate depth. But then one last thing before we're done this morning, and one more way the Spirit helps, the Spirit helps thirdly to cause you to pray with the appropriate wide-angle lens. So we're told here the Spirit intercedes for us. He helps our prayers by first adding the appropriate depth and affectation to them, by interceding for us with groans and utterances too deep for words. That's verse 26. But secondly, he helps us, we're told, by adding the appropriate context the appropriate wide-angle lens by interceding, verse 27, according to the will of God. So the text says we don't pray because we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit knows how we should pray because he knows God's heart. He knows how to connect our hearts to God's heart. That's verse 27. And so that's his work, is to help us to, to have the appropriate context in which to offer our prayers. Tim Keller, per his usual, has this great way of putting this. He says, um, our prayers are answered by God in exactly the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. Our vision is too narrow to know how we should be praying, especially when you're going through a hard time. Have you ever heard the term emotional hijacking? You know what this is? 
When you perceive a threat, all of the blood, we're told, in the brain is diverted from the amygdala. It's, it's, it's diverted to the amygdala, to the emotional center of the brain and away from the thinking center of the brain. And that's the body preparing itself for the fight or flight response. But what it means is when we're stressed, we get stupid. We stop think literally. I mean, it's literally. It's quite. We you stop thinking. If you're stressed, your thinking is not is not very good. And so the reason prayer is so hard, particularly when we're going through a hard time, is because we've lost our rationality. We've lost our ability to think. We've lost our ability to to, to rem, be mindful of of the the larger story in the context and to to stay rational about the things that are happening to us and put them in the proper perspective. And so the Spirit's ministry is to lead us into prayer from the depths by helping us zoom out and see the big picture. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. It gives us the context in which to pray. And so we don't get swept up into the, in the, in the emotion of the moment. And here is what, uh, if I had to summarize the teaching of the, of the text, and we'll just do this as we close, here's what I would tell you the text teaches ultimately about the context in which we live our lives. And, and there's three, just three little things for you to pin, okay? Just three little pins uh, for, for helping you in prayer. And the first is this, that, what we learn from the text is that all our, all our bad things will ultimately turn for good. First, all of our bad things will ultimately turn for good. That's verse 28. Look at it. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, what does this mean? It means, number one, if you're a Christian, you aren't promised different circumstances. You don't escape the reality of verses 18 and following. Bad things happen to people who love God and who God loves. You with me? It doesn't say things work together for good, okay? And so the second thing is, if anything is turning to good, it's because of God. The teaching of Romans 8 is that because of sin, things naturally fall apart. There's corruption, verse 21. And so things are, are going right are not the normal. That's the modern Western idea, but it's not the biblical idea. You won't find it in the Bible. So if it's going good and it's not falling apart, it's because God is at work. And so third, then, God's turning all things to good includes these bad things. However, it doesn't mean that the bad things are really good. Life is full of heartache and loss and death. And can I say, those things are awful. They, they're awful. But God is working in all things together in the totality of everything that is happening in the world for ultimate good. And there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. You might not be able to say, you know, this bad thing that I went through has led to this good thing that I'll ultimately experience. It probably doesn't work that way. You know, I got fired from this job, but it was because I was supposed to have this better job that God's given me. Yay, isn't God great? All things work together for good. It really doesn't work that way. And you probably will have to wait for more than a week, maybe a year or more than a decade some commentators and theologians muse that it, maybe it will be a trillion years into eternity and we'll still be discovering all of the connections and subtle ways that God is working together things for good. Because it's that big. And he is consistently and pervasively that good. An ultimate good for the whole of everything is a much bigger, bigger project than good that makes up for the bad little things that little old me has to go through. Do you see what I'm saying? Ultimate good for the whole of everything is what we're talking about. Widening a lens. So whatever you're going through, no matter how scary it feels right now, if you love God, if you belong to Jesus, the end of the story is that they all lived happily ever after. We're not told how. We're not told when. 
All we're given is the character of God. God is at work, we're told. He's involved in every single detail. That comes across in this word, verse 29, predestined. It means everything is fixed. The outcome is sure. So when God says that he will turn all things to good in verse 28, because of verse 29, you can be confident that he will because he is sovereign and in absolute control of the movement of the planets orbiting the sun and the collision of subatomic particles on the cellular level. Nothing happens to you that he is not the cause of. And everything he does comes from love. The beginning of every laid plan for you is love. And that's the word for new, verse 29. And there's a lot of theological wrangling about that word, and especially how it relates to this idea of predestination. And it doesn't mean, let me just, let me just say this, and we're not going to stay here long. It doesn't mean that God looks into the future and sees what you do and then makes choices and plans accordingly. Paul doesn't say God foreknows the choices or the course of events of our lives, it says he foreknows people, those whom he foreknew. So in the Bible, to know someone means that you love them uniquely. So it means that God, it means that God loved you decisively ahead of time, literally before time. Uh, before Madison Bumgarner pitched the ninth inning of the World Series a few years ago, which he basically single-handedly won for the Giants, if you remember, his dad sent him a text in uh, the top of the ninth inning while uh, his team was at bat. He sent him a text before he went out uh, and told him how much he loved him. Why? Because he wanted him to know, in the interview they, they gave later, he said he wanted him to know that no matter whether he won or lost the game, he went out to that mound, the beloved son of his father, and he would come back into the dugout after the game was over, the beloved son of his father. It didn't matter what happened in the ninth inning. And that's what you've got here. God is absolutely sovereign. He is unconditionally committed to you, and therefore you can trust him when he says that all of our bad things will only turn for good. But secondly, and I'll be much, much faster from here. Secondly, we're told that all of our good things can't be taken away from us. Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first mortal among many brethren. So here we're told what the good that God is doing is. Look at that word for there. For there means uh, Paul's explaining what he just said in verse 28. He's unfolding his argument. God is working all things together for good. Well, what's the good? That's what verse 29 is about. This is, this is a good lesson on how to read the Bible. You should never read verses 28 without verse 29. People quote verse 28, pull it out of context to make themselves feel better about whatever awful thing they're going through and promise themselves that tomorrow's going to be better. But you need to read verse 28 with the explanation of verse 29 because the good in verse 28 is not a better, better life circumstances. According to verse 29, it's a better life. And do you know the difference? They're not the same things. Good circumstances and a good life are not the same things. I mean, what is the good that God is doing in all he's doing? Verse 29, he is conforming us to the image of Jesus. The good that God is moving you towards is to sculpt you into Jesus's likeness so that all of the luminosity that you see in his life will come into yours as well. All of his beauty, all of his greatness, all of his compassion, courage, all of his intimacy with the Father, all of his relational wisdom, all of his, all, all of the beauty of who he is, you get all of that. I mean, you read the Gospels, I hope, I do, you read the Gospels and there's such life in Jesus, right? He never sulked, he never cowered, and God is on a mission to bring you life like that. Here's the thing, suffering, pain, hard times is his tool. What the text teaches is suffering can't take it away from you. I mean, excuse me, it can take from you. 
but it can't take the most important things away. In fact, just the opposite. Suffering is the chisel in God's hand to give you a better life than you have now, to give you indestructible joy and peace and courage and hope and all of these kinds of things. And so it's true that all of our bad things turn for good and that all of our good things can't be taken away from us. But then the third thing is that all of our best things are yet to come. And that's verse 30. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What's the end of our story? Glory. And let me just define glory by using the words of one of the Karamazov brothers in uh, Dostoevsky's famous novel where he says this. He's talking about the end of the world. He says, suffering will be healed and made up for. In the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, and to make it possible to justify all that's happened. Glory. Glory means that something so great is going to happen that it'll make all of the suffering and the pain we went through in this world a small and passing thing. Our best things are yet to come. You believe that? If you do, you'll be full of hope. So let me just finish. Let me draw your attention to one last thing. Notice at the very end, the golden chain of salvation, that all the different parts of God's work and how they're linked together. Those God predestines, he calls, and those he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies, and so on. But if you are astute, you'll notice that something is missing there. Paul doesn't include a really important word that we typically include kind of in the, the order of salvation, and it's the word sanctification, which refers to kind of our growing into holiness uh, like Jesus. And we might expect him to have that word there, but it isn't there. And why? And I think it's this. I think it's because we're so prone to turn our back, excuse me, to turn back to our own efforts to pitch the ninth inning to try to earn God's love and secure our future. We're so prone to that, that Paul just leaves it out. He says, if, if, if you've been predestined and called and justified, then you'll be glorified too. Of course, of course you'll be sanctified too, but Paul doesn't bring that in here. He skips right over it because he wants us to remember that the gospel is that all of what he's saying here is based not upon the work that you do, but upon the work of the Lord Jesus for you. Paul wants you to know that if your faith is in Jesus, you can't blow it bad enough to stop what God has started with you. You can't, you can't cause the story he's writing to not come to pass. You're a part of the story that God is writing. The beginning is love. The end is glory. It's an absolute sure thing. In fact, it's already yours. Heirs tense there, verse 30. Not future tense, heirs tense. The glory, it's there, it's waiting for you. This text says, wait for it. While you wait, ask the Spirit to help you because that's what he does. So let's pray. Can we pray as we come to the end of our service now and sing together? Father, so help us, Spirit. Spirit, come and help us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your great work, that the gospel is not just that you died on a cross for our sins, but that you were raised and you were seated in heaven. And from heaven, you've sent the Spirit and so the spirit in us is better than you walking beside us. We believe that. And so we do pray that you would uh, send your spirit to us. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come and ignite in our hearts this, this depth of feeling and affectation and hope. Uh, help our eyes to see with the appropriate wide-angle lens so that as we pray and even as we sing now in these last moments together, that we would sing uh, with the right perspective, knowing, uh, knowing the truth uh, that this scripture brings to us and that it would fill us 
both with the freedom to express our longing and our grumpiness and our discontent with the way things continue to be in the world with you because you can handle it and it's what you want from us, but also to break through that. Hold on, hold on to the vision of shalom that you've given to us and live with a defiant hope even when guitars fall and break in pieces. Uh, we thank you that in all of the mess that we make, that you reign and you rule and you are truly working all things together for, for good, for everything in the totality. What an amazing truth. Let us rest in it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, he seals our hearts with the promise of his goodness to us. And so as we are sent from this place now, we go uh, fully confident, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, that you go uh, under the Father's protection and care with the promise of his spirit uh, to lead and guide you. That's what these words mean. And so receive the words of this benediction then as he sends us out uh, into this world that can be hard to walk through, uh, but with the constant promise of his provision and grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.